Hello, everybody. So, welcome to the Dialogue Podcast. I'm here with my friend and co-host Rahil. Hi, everyone. I'm Sunday, by the way. Don't didn't miss that out. Um. So basically, we're going to be talking in this episode about how the coronavirus has specifically impacted students. Actually, before we got into air, Rahul and I were just talking about how we want to book our transport arrangements to go back to school for after the lockdown. But we don't even know what's going to happen after the lockdown. You know, like we can't even say with certainty I'm flying back on this day. Nobody knows. Like everyone's in the dark. Exactly. And what if we need to go back when the lockdown's over and there's over 10,000 cases and we physically cannot go back to class? They're learning to become financially independent, but they're not yet financially independent. But people seem to treat them as if they have sort of autonomy. Exactly. And you hear about all of this talk about the economy and those sectors, and that is vitally important. But we're forgetting about students, college students, university students, the entire education sector. I don't think we've spoken enough about teachers and how do we continue to facilitate learning at this at this time? Yeah, that is that is really true. So we're just going to jump into right into it. We're going to go from the very first moment that both of us got the email that said that we had to like leave, like skedaddle, like go. Okay. So for me, I was in the middle of studying when I got my, when I got the email, the notification. And at that point I felt it was getting very real because before Mm -hmm. COVID-19, it was a, it was a scary, but abstract phenomenon. But when Mm -hmm. university shut down across the country, COVID came knocking at my doorstep. Now, I'm not in res. I'm in a private place. But I was still told to go home and leave for my safety, which got me worried. Asande, I know mm. that um, you're in res. What was your experience when they just told you to pack up and leave? To be fully honest with you, I don't think it registered. Like, you said you were in the middle of studying when you got the email. And I was in the same situation. But I wasn't in a good space, like, on that day. I was sick, my head was pounding, I was stressed, my whole body was just like in the pits. So when I got the email, the immediate thing that registered to me was great. I can put down my pen and stop studying. I booked a flight and I lay in bed. The only time that it became apparent to me how real this was, was the next day when I was looking for boxes and I was trying to fit my room into boxes I found like five minutes ago. Because when you start to see the implications of your absence, it registers. I'm not here for I don't know how long because there's a pandemic. And that's when it became real. And it's so funny because we watched universities around the world pack up. We watched China close down. We watched Mm. America close down. I remember seeing Princeton um, issuing like Instagram notifications to their students to leave. And I was like, oh, you know, it's happening over there. It then registered to me that two weeks after I saw that it would be me doing that. And that's when everything just came real. But Rahil, you know how when people heard that university was going to be closed, People started celebrating. People were ordering Ubers, going to kind regards. How do you feel about students celebrating the fact that their assignments and tests were postponed in the wake of a pandemic? I kid you not. I think two minutes after the email got sent and everybody got it, you just heard cars going on, students screaming from balconies. It was, it felt like, it was so surreal. I felt like I was in a movie. You know, in all honesty, I understood why the students felt a sense of celebration. Like varsity is closed, they get an extra whatever days of holiday and they could go out partying, not have to worry about assignments. 
But I realized very soon that the celebrations were very short-lived because after the whole town shut down and the students were told to leave, nobody was ready for what was to come because everybody was like, oh, great, university. People were telling the university to shut down. Then when it actually happened, people were angry. People were left directionless. People were focused. Exactly. So in hindsight, the celebrations were not in good taste. I understand in the moment, but it was not in the in the long term. Look at where we are now. We're, we're, we're shutting down on Thursday, tomorrow. <laughs> so tomorrow. yeah, it, it it wasn't good at all. Yeah, you know, yeah, and with the whole residence, I mean, um, kids were only given seventy two hours to leave. For me, what happened is, you know, you get the email. Emails like Sunday night, you have seventy two hours to leave. So basically, by Wednesday midnight, um, everyone had to be out. And obviously, this exposed a lot of things. Firstly, it exposed a gap in terms of access to resources and privilege. You have people in res who can literally book a flight the same time the email comes in and they're sorted. They're going to pack their bags and leave. But you have people in res who don't know where they're going to go when they're told to leave. You have people in res who can't go home because they don't have the resources. Or you have people that just don't want to go home because it's not a good space to be in for them at that stage. And it became apparent because like, we have a WhatsApp group chat for my res, like for the floor that I'm on. And people started asking questions like, what if I don't want to go home? What if I can't go home? What if home is not a good place for me to be right now? And it no, became apparent that the university had no answers when the head mentor just kept on saying, okay, but we need to evacuate. There was no... um you know, like plan B for those kind of people. And mm. I know that there were numerous buses that left my university after that. But it's scary because the lockdown starts tomorrow, which is the 26th of March. But yesterday, Monday, the 23rd of March, my university was still getting buses to get students out. It's apparent that people just didn't have the time, didn't have the resources to leave when they were required to leave. And that's, that was really, like, insane. And yeah, just to let culture i saw a meme the other day where this girl wrote that she packed like a little carry-on luggage thinking she was only going to go home for spring break and bam now she can't go back to uni and that happened to some people i know some people i know packed in the smallest little luggage thinking it was just a long march back but no like i think it's because the way the whole thing was articulated to us that March VAC is starting early that people conceptualized it as just a longer VAC so that the government can sort out their stuff no Everybody's on the line now. I mean, I know a lot of people, I know a lot of people on the other side of this did not understand to what extent this whole thing was happening. What you just described, I don't think a lot of people know that students had to go through that. I think some people just thought, okay, pack up and go home, it's the safest. But it it wasn't the safest for most people. Because imagine now, I know some students really feared for catching the virus at crowded bus stations, busy airports. Wherever, because, you know, if people need to go to the other side of the country, there's a lot of interacting with people involved. And I think at the time, the cases were just over 100 and they were still telling people to go home and people were just really scared. So there's a Namibian student, student who is at Wits University. So that's University of the Witwatersrand, Clearwaters, if people don't know about that. And that student recently got home and received the test results from South Africa. So he tested for COVID when he was still at Wits last week, then flew home. He tested positive. So it's, a lot of people are becoming confused as to, okay, Wits and many other universities forced students to leave for their own safety valid. But what if students were already exposed? Now you're basically like mm-hmm. sending home these little packages of COVID all over the country. 
Um, and that's that's exactly what the next topic is about with regards to the two the two law students adverts who wanted to mm. who fought with the university about that exact issue. It's also like it's good to keep in mind, but I think on a broader scale, I think COVID nineteen is testing a lot of things. It's testing about like can humans cooperate? Can humans use their resources? But it's also testing leadership. So it mm-hmm. admits the two law students took the university to court because they stated that this had not given them a contingency plan. And obviously they got turned away because this is a national emergency. Adam Habib didn't stand up and decide to make you leave. The president said it is not safe, you know? So exactly. there was no yeah. footing there. But there was a question as to how much resources were used to approach the court and could those resources have been used to get students out? Just a question. Perci- Just a question. Precisely, I mean... Yeah, I, this this whole pandemic, it's testing a lot of things. And I think the biggest thing it's testing is strong leadership. Because in the face of a pandemic, you need strong leaders with swift action. You can't have people waiting on the sidelines, waiting for other countries to make mistakes and then learn from that. Mm. That's obviously part of it, but you can't wait. You can't make that your main, your main goal or your main course of action. That's really true. But I also want to detour and tell people a story about what happened at my university. So, mm-hmm. obviously, the main mouthpiece of the students <clears throat> is the SRC, right? So, similarly to, well, like, when Vitz, the law students, like, went to court, uh, there's actually people from my university that started posting, like, comments on social media. And they were like, oh, it seems like he has no law students. And I think they posted it because they were like, it seems that UCT has nobody that can stand up for students. So obviously the SRC came out and they were like, look, we are going to occupy the residences. Don't evacuate, stay right where you are. No contingency plan was given, blah, blah, blah. But then somewhere, I think it was, this was Monday morning after the announcement on Sunday night. Somewhere along the line, on Monday afternoon slash Tuesday morning, I think, the SRC president like changed the position and he was like, all students should get out. It's a national emergency. These are the numbers you can call if you need help. Just get home and get like get out, get home safe. And then it started going to a Twitter war. Then the SRC was like, oh no, our president is eating at the table with the executives. We will make sure that he pays for this. And then shortly after they were like, we retract that retraction, please go home. And people just thought that was very childish. They felt like yeah. they were not fully informed as mm. what to do. And for me, it just showed that our SRC has not evolved much since Fees Must Fall. Fees Must Fall was amazing. People stood up for what they believed in, but I think they're using the same template of leadership that whenever executives say something, you react. And that's mm-hmm. not what leaders need to be doing. Leaders need to be doing what's right for the student populace. They don't need to be showing us that they can stand up to executives. That's a waste of time. And I think it applies to much of how a lot of people are reacting to this. I think as humans, when we learn something new, we want to assimilate it to something we've already experienced or something we've already learned. So people in their reactions, general people, leaders, politicians, businessmen, they're assimilating this thing into something they've already seen, which is helpful, but it's not helpful because not appreciating the nuances of this specific situation. And that's exactly what you see in how my SRC reacted. There was just no consideration. I think I think but, you I think you make a very good point when you say that they're using the tactics that they used with fees must fall and that it doesn't apply to this novel situation. This is the first time that most of the student populace, actually, I think all of the student populace in undergraduates or early postgrad are experiencing a pandemic lockdown in this country. Mm. You know, so mm. what what 
how can you i mean i don't blame them they did what worked the last time because there's you know during a pandemic there's no time to plan that's why i say you need swift action your src leaders they they were just going with what worked the last time and i think that was kind of the only option okay true but you you latched onto something there you mentioned how even post graduate activity has stopped and for yeah. me i began to fully register this national lockdown that's when you know that things are deep because if you think about it the livelihood of many academic institutions is research most of the biggest universities in this country specifically are all research universities very intensive with that when that whole protocol had to stop i think it really highlighted a lot of things but specifically how is education and the academic lifestyle for not only tertiary education students but even for high school students how is that going to be affected and how are students going to have to adapt because we can't just sit here and do nothing in the middle of an academic year what do you think is a possible way that universities can mitigate the lack of contact classes Okay so we actually talked about it on the phone last night the whole online class thing and how people are having like lectures via Zoom um mm-hmm. and yeah so i think the main strategy that people are kind of betting on is online learning and yeah. i know that different universities across the country are instituting it in early april you said you were starting the 1st of april i know i'm starting on the 6th of april and so forth but I still do get your question it's like okay that starts then what do I do now do I just relax mm-hmm. do I use some of my June vac and then expect to like not have a June vac or do I catch up and you actually latched onto this last night you're like how much do I push like nobody's giving me direction no one's telling me this is where you should be this is what I expect from you at the stage there's no sort of interaction going on people are just like stay home you know and it's like and do what you mentioned how social i, I mean social distancing <clears throat> or self isolation the lockdown is going to be mentally challenging for a lot of people as students were used to being in very populous areas is not at risk lecture halls lecture halls in the library all the places that you interact with on a daily basis are full of people you see people that you know very often and you're used to coming back home under the pretext of i'm going to see my high school friends so students were used to interaction My question is with our unique way of conceptualizing our social interactions like I've just explained are we going to be mentally okay we'll have to see at the end of lockdown before people can possibly gather again i definitely think that it will be a difficult time for individuals individuals though who don't have that relationship or who really have formed a very strong connection with their friends that they see every day out of their home life they're going to really feel a lot of changes this is almost like a big social experiment mm-hmm. um with regards to how humans who are social creatures need to socially isolate and there are ways around this but a video call is not the same as seeing a person hearing their voice you know actually interacting with them on a human level and i think this will actually make people it's it's a weird thing to say but it will really make people appreciate human connection mm-hmm. and how much we take for granted that we can actually see our friends every day this is kind of a testament to okay we're being faced with the challenge we weren't necessarily told to prepare for it what do we do now 
you know. Actually, on the issue of wars, yeah. I saw yesterday that Antonio mm-hmm. Guerrez, I think he's the UN, like head of the UN right now, he called for a global ceasefire. I think that as much as we don't have any big wars, we still do have a very tense Syrian Yemen situation because people are still mm-hmm. fighting, people are still warring. There are still civil wars in all these other regions that we don't typically hear of. To the extent yeah, when she's definitely. still calling for ceasefires. And I think it's so funny how we're preoccupied with this pandemic. There's somebody in the world right now who has to think about the pandemic and the civil war that might raise their home down. Added to that Nigeria has an outbreak of Lassa fever. Mm-hmm. Um, the Congo has a exactly. outbreak. There are just so many things happening in the background. And it's like, you don't want to leave everything behind. So um, I was thinking, so coronavirus is a big thing because it's impacting the whole world. There have been pandemics, like the 2008 cholera pandemic from Zimbabwe. Mm-hmm. that infiltrated most of the sub-Saharan African region. I was too young then to know what was happening, but I'm just wondering if it received the same level of coverage. That's all. I remember during the first, like, two, three days of the pandemic being announced, people on Twitter were saying this wouldn't have been a pandemic if this wouldn't have been getting this much coverage or news if it started in the middle of Africa. And I just thought about that for a second. In in terms of in terms of how it's been reported, not in terms of what actually what actually happened. So I, I was very curious. That's a very good point to mention. Where how much of an impact on who on which kind of individuals does a pandemic have to have in order for it to be mainstream or in order for the whole world to care about it? Mm-hmm. Because for cholera, that wasn't like a social distancing thing. Cholera is spread through water. So it was almost a situation of if you have clean water and if you go to the source and you can manage to clean the water before, it's not really going to be an issue for those who have access to clean running water Mm. and they don't need to make it a big deal. So I guess at the same time, it kind of brings up the topic of if it doesn't affect the higher ups. There's a little rebuttal to that. And as much as I'm the person that instigated this question, Uh I watched, I I kept Uh like updating um, my coronavirus like feeds every day. For a, long, for a long period of time, easily two to three weeks, people put pressure on the WHO for to declare coronavirus a pandemic. The WHO resisted. They tried in every other way to state coronavirus is a problem, but not a pandemic. So if I have to be pretty, like, from what I've seen, the WHO wasn't very easy to push into this decision. Like, even for them, lots of op-eds were being written, lots of major publishers were putting pressure on them, and they were resisting it week after week. I think they changed it to pandemic when it just became clear that this virus is spreading fast. We don't know much about it. Stay indoors. That's when they were like, okay, pandemic. Yeah, um, I think, but I also, I think the reason that, so the word pandemic, it's not really a specific term. It has a lot of criteria that something must meet for it to become a pandemic in terms of the World Health Organization. But the reason they didn't label it as a pandemic, well, they, the spokesperson said, he said that it sometimes can cause Un- unnecessary concern or worry where they should be still concerned and worry but pandemic just has social implications which is why they i think in 2005 they coined the term public health emergency yes. of international concern yes but i'm going to take the conversation back into a different corner i'm going to go back to the whole university uh-huh. thing because Yes. This is not the first time South African universities have been put on lockdown. We watched other universities um, in other countries lockdown. It seems very foreign to us. And then it happened to us. And 
we have had our fair share of tertiary education disruption. So I have a friend who's in fifth year in his medical like school career. And I asked him to break down all the instances in his um, uni career that school has been disrupted. So in his first year, he had fees must fall. That meant that his November exams had to be moved to the next year. So he literally wrote his first year exams and did second year in one year. And he was telling the people writing subs attending second year lectures. That is insane. Firstly, in his second year, I think there was like an um, a doing. Was it fees must fall? Or that or our dean of faculty health sciences passed away. And because it was linked to fees must fall, it was a bit like shaky. Then in third year, I believe it was the same movement kind of threatening to disrupt the thing. Then in fourth year, which was last year, we had the gender-based violence thing, which had our university closed for about a week. And then his fifth year now is coronavirus. And he was just saying that of all the closures he's ever experienced, it's frustrating. But the only one he can fully mm. understand is this one, because this one is not in human hands, which to me was, I understand. I get that. That's that's actually quite hectic. When you list the things every single year that hindered the university actually operating that really puts it into perspective the kind of unique experience that South African universities have to face. University and university affairs only affect the students and the people who are paying for the students' education. Mm. It's only those two parties which the university, you know, people actually care what's going on. Obviously the research, that impacts everyone, but specifically to the operations, it only affects them and that's a that's quite hectic to think that pe- a lot of people actually go through that every single year and still have to perform as well as they do mm. at university. But with regards to all of that and shutting down, what do you think are some of the reasons that would lead to the academic performance of some students decreasing because of the shutdowns? So I think... The first reason I can immediately think of is the fact that you're not in an academic space, you're at home. Studying at home, mm. as opposed to studying on campus or in your res, it's two different environments. And of course, we're adults, you have to adapt, improvise, grow, but it has an impact. You don't know how disruptive somebody's home thing is. Um, that's the first thing I can think of. The second thing would be the way mm. things get squashed together when you get back. So you don't have enough time to interact with each of the resources. And even though, again, you're an adult, you can literally go look at your course outline and read the textbook. Does everybody have the means to do that? I mean, not everybody can go online, buy a textbook, or do whatever to get a textbook, because internet. The third reason for me would just be the general psychological impact of this. You know, with, with these must fall, mm. people watched their best friends get arrested. That's not easy to do. With coronavirus, I think it's too early to say, but are people going to be watching their best friends fall ill and undergo the symptoms? You video call your friend, they answer, they're sweating. They say they're tired, they're coughing, they don't know how to feel. It's a very... It's early on, but when things get personal, it might not be psychologically easy. And to go from that to academics Mm. might be a challenge, you know, for people. With regards to all of that together, I think as well, you mentioned the environment. I think a lot of the students, when people applied for going to public university or private university, wherever you need to physically be there, they signed up for contact, for a contact experience. Mm. And a lot of students just don't know how to learn. 
with online resources. They don't know how to plan their life around timetables, specifically relating to wake up, do this work. You know, it's very, everything seems very intangible. Like if your laptop's closed and you don't see what's actually on the screen, nothing's going to happen. You're not going to feel the incentive to work. Or even if you do know you have to work, it seems very abstract because it's all online. You have to open a link, do this, do that. People are just worried they're going to miss out on things. Do you think it's fair to allow online lectures and resources to be given out to every single person in a course when you know that a lot of them won't have access to either Wi-Fi or have access to a device? That's a very, that's a very complex that? question, especially because lots of the emails that I've mm-hmm. received were like, lecturers will start updates, I mean, start uploading new lectures soon. You don't have to look at these, though. They'll be taught at a later stage. That is very confusing to me. It's like you give me this resource. And you're like, oh, but you don't need to look at it. We'll teach it again later. And then it's like, okay, but if I do look at it, then I have an advantage over the person who couldn't. Because I'm going to get to the lecture, I'm going to be seeing this for the third time now because I read it twice at home. You know what I mean? So that that's going to have a very uneasy advantage. And before I answer the question directly, I also wanted to add that it's so different being in a lecture at home on your couch compared to being in the lecture in the lecture theater. It's, it's a different experience. If you, if you see where I'm going with it. A lot of people have written how working from home is different. When you're on a Zoom call from your bedroom compared to being in the office, the way, I guess what I'm getting at is, how does your environment impact the way you carry yourself? Yes, you should be old enough to protect you all circumstances, haha, but I'm being dead serious. If people are going to sit at home and just not feel as serious, are they going to be taking in as much as they should be from the lecture? Because when you step into a lecture hall, there's a thing of, I shouldn't be on my phone now. I should be listening now, you know? That same pressure might not come from the home environment. Firstly, now that I'm done with that, I don't think yeah. it's fair. I don't think you can put online resources on, resources on there when you know that some people are not going to be able to open it. But I'm going to, my university actually organized well, I've heard about this. I haven't actually like, checked my data balance before and after, so I can't say. But my university basically organized for online learning tab to be zero rated. So people on my course group were, bas- were basically just like instructing people how to do it. And apparently you can like open all the existing slideshows and not be charged. And I think that if your university has not done that already, it should be done. Because that would ease the load. Even if it's just a student going on their phone to read through the slides, that's that's very... That's a game changer. So up until every university knows exactly, how to yeah. make their online learning tab zero rated, no lecture should be uploaded. There's just too much unfairness. Mm, I definitely agree because I think, firstly, that's great that your university actually is making the provisions. They're thinking well ahead for the long term. And that's that definitely shows good leadership from your university. Also, I think I, I definitely agree with you about the fairness. Personally, as an individual, I can access all of the information that they were to give that if they are to give out anything. However, I think even during normal contact lectures, so many students are already at a disadvantage with regards to how far they live, what's the access to resources, you know, how long does it take them to get to places, not things that they choose, things that just are a part of their life, you know, livelihoods. And yeah, I think I think access to education is 
needs to be taken yeah. more seriously. Because if we discuss it too late, then no effective change might happen. Because I think if we if we start thinking about this now, in terms of everything else that's happening, we're going to have a good a good standing. We're going to have our foot in the door already when university does start again. And people need to make big decisions. How much work do we need to catch up on? Do they need to write these tests? Are these assignments important? Because I think the biggest thing that's going to work against every single university is time. Because they, they're losing over a month mm-hmm. now of time that they could have had these students working. I know a lot of people had semester tests scheduled. And that forms, what, 50% of the semester mark? Where are they going to get that back? That's a good point. But just on that, I saw on the Harvard page going to start making their courses pass fail. So if you go to Harvard, especially in law school, if you're in Harvard Law School, you will not receive a grade. Everything for the semester will be pass fail. Because you cannot expect people to be reaching for 80s, 90s when they're not going to be the same circumstances that allowed them to reach 80s, 90s. So it's either you get above 50 or you get below 50 and it ends there. And I think that's really good because it just removes the pressure of having to still like perform under like not normal circumstances. That's a very drastic thing to say. I definitely agree with you. It removes the pressure. What do you think about the kids who had a long-term plan to get into like an Ivy League school like that? And then they plan to be at the top of the class. Or they structured their entire lives around... I get it. Circumstances change, and you can't you be picky a very valid in situations point. Saying, like What this. about the student who has caved their identity on being a performer? There's no space to perform if we're going to make everyone pass fail. Exactly, and to be honest, the entire university system—it's a vicious game. It is literally a competition. University is not about all the students passing. It's about an individual working in their own right to excel in the tertiary education sector. That's what it is. People are there to gain knowledge. And you, we, we can have a different debate about what marks mean and everything, but students chose to be there. They chose to pay the tuition. And I, with regards to how expensive university is, I don't think that some people, I don't think it would be fair to just expect some people to get 50 and then that's it. Everybody who got 50 and above is in the same category. Mm-hmm. Even the kids who got distinctions. Okay, I thought it good consider. I did not think of it that, you know. Actually, mm. I thought to myself when I first saw it, I was like, oh, that's a really good move. But what I thought next was, oftentimes when people apply to, um, especially the more well-paying financial institutions like Goldman Sachs, they actually look at your GPA. How mm-hmm. do you have a GPA if everybody is pass-fail? How do we know who to recruit? So it really does obscure a lot of things, like you were saying. People aim for things, and now you're removing the the separation of the people who worked and the people who are like, you know. Exactly, and I think in, in the very beginning, we spoke about how there's so much emphasis being put on the economy. Part of the economy is the workforce coming from university. So if you change the entire fundamental base, of how marks are being captured and how work is being assessed after the pandemic, are you not also changing the way that companies have to adjust their criteria for who they accept hmm. to work? That is true. Because now, yeah. you can't look at your GPA, they have that. to look at yeah. you as an individual person. What are your hobbies? What do you do on the weekend? Do you have a leadership thing? Now they have to look at humans. Imagine, capitalism has to look at humans. I'm not going to go there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a different, different that's a different that's different a different session, session we need to but have 
we've heard a lot about coronavirus or as Trump calls it, the Chinese virus, and it's links to racism. Now, I have, I think, I've, I've, how do I say this? I have a friend who's experienced it. I have a friend whose parents experienced it. Do you know anyone who's experienced racism because of the coronavirus? And what do we think? You know, because uni is a time in life where although your values and morals are, they tend to be fully formed, they can still be molded. So specifically in terms of racism in the university sphere Mm -hmm. and how it aligns with coronavirus, how do we feel? It's It's an important question. I've seen this whole movement of, don't use this situation as a justification mm. for your racism because I don't think there's any justification mm. for racism. Personally, I haven't had myself, me, myself, I haven't experienced any racism. There's no reason for me to. And people, individuals that I know that are of Southeast Asian descent or who I do not have any personal f- experiences with that or okay. friends that I know that have experienced that. The only kind of you know, perspective I have is South African nationals being put into quarantine, even though they came from mm. a low risk country. That's the only thing I've heard heard about it. And the reason that they were put under quarantine was because of their Asian descent, um, not because they came from a high risk country. I know that a lot of national Chinese nationals around the world are trying to go back mm. home. And even though they didn't, they haven't been to any places with high incidence rates, they're being turned back. And that's largely because of the mm. way that they look. I can't imagine having to go through, through that. I know a lot of individuals feel very uncomfortable that the way that they look, their heritage is being targeted, is being blamed, mm. as you said. And when Trump called it the Chinese virus, there's a lot of implications for that because there's no need to call it the Chinese virus, yes, that's where it's originated, but that doesn't, calling it that is not adding any value to the name. When we call it SARS-CoV-2, that's a lot of information we can get from that name. When you call it Chinese virus, that's, I don't know, I feel like that has some agendas mm-hmm. hidden behind it. You don't, call, you don't call the origin of every single virus today the continental country that it came from. So I don't see the reason for him to call it Chinese virus other than, I don't know, taking a jab. at That is so true. I love the point where you mentioned that we receive no information from Chinese virus. But when you say SARS-CoV-2, I know it's associated with SARS. I know it's a coronavirus. So I know how the lipid envelope looks like. I know it's the second version. And I know that SARS respiratory syndrome. So I already know exactly what I'm dealing with. I have extracted literally... The bulk of information for that name. When you say Chinese virus, all you tell me is where it came from. And all you tell me, all you tell me is when leaders are calling it Chinese virus, and I've heard people say Kung Flu. I heard that, that too. Is and Trump refused to I heard, I watched obscene. a video where a journalist said, What do you think of your White House aides calling it Kung Flu? Trump asked mm. her to repeat the statement. She repeated it. Trump asked her who said it. She said, mm. Give me the name, but she knows it's been used. The Trump called her. It's, As a good yeah. answer, he was like, it comes from China, I'm going to call it the Chinese virus, and it ended there. And I- Politics mm. is involved, obviously, but he's really trying to defame whatever the Democratic Party has built mm. up in the country, and saying, oh, if this and this didn't happen, this mm. wouldn't be a big issue.
that Trump wants like the American system to go back as per normal before Easter. And Bill Gates was commenting on that. He was like, you cannot yeah. risk human lives just because you want the economy to be better. Just because, and it's actually because the way Trump has framed himself. Trump keeps saying that the economy is better under him. He keeps saying the economy is better under him than it ever was under Obama or any other Democrat. And the reason why Trump wants to go back to a normal or growing economy is because it threatens his brand. His entire brand is the economy. So he would rather lose human lives than lose the economy for just three weeks. Disease CDC. But they basically have like a, a hundred more than 100 pages of a document that outlines the kind of language that a leader should use, how you basically reinforce trust and safety mm-hmm. in the population, how you encourage people to undertake the necessary health measures, because at the end of the day, the individual behavior change you want people to institute is going to come from how much they trust you and are willing to act on your words. And the CDC has found that Trump has actually obeyed none of those guidelines. He has gone against every single one of them. And I find that shocking. You want people to change. You want people to stay at home. So if you're not the kind of person they trust with information, then they use Mm. a federalist manner of government. So each state can decide. So you have Mm. states that are under lockdown. You have states where people are still holding conventions. That, to me, is scary. I've seen a lot of people Mm -hmm. saying that China managed to control corona because despite being some sort of a capitalist, some sort of democratic state, they still are very communist in terms of their thinking, in terms of the way they operate. And as such, they still have very autocratic undertones. Mm-hmm. So people were saying that China can go to complete lockdown because the president can say something, people take him seriously, and in like 24 hours, the army's on the streets. Not every single Western country operates that way. And even if it were, not all Western citizens would allow themselves mm-hmm. to be governed that way. I received a chain message last night that no religious and political debates will be allowed under the lockdown. And I'm sorry, I I think I'm the worst person to tell not to do that. But it shocked me because it's like, (laughs) of course, (laughs) to what extent is that true? And to what extent is that justifiable? Mm -hmm. You're telling me that because I'm staying indoors and there's a pandemic that I mustn't Mm. talk about religion and politics. And it's. No, but what do you what do you what what do you mean what do they mean by religious and political debate? I understand political debate. I don't understand what do they mean by religious debate. You know that message had the vague nature carried by every other WhatsApp chain message you've ever received. But I think the bigger question Mm. is China has an autocratic background. They can control things because they control the population. The world cannot necessarily do that. If you're not Russia, and you're not China, and you're not Cuba, you don't operate like that. We have something in South Africa called freedom mm. of movement. It's an individual's right to move freely under mm-hmm. certain limitations, of course. So a lot of people, I know a lot of people bring this into question when it comes to lockdown, and I definitely think the limitation mm. clause applies with regards to, you You know, you cannot move, because that is what it is. The government high you know this power is restricting your movement but i don't think here it's for any malicious malicious intention they're kind of they're literally just following what who has said but speaking of freedom of movement i'm pretty sure you're familiar with the quarantine cases here in our country in south africa where people refuse to be under quarantine because they believe it hinders their right of movement and you mentioned on how there's a limitation clause Mm -hmm. so the last time i read the constitution i was in grade 10 but if I remember correctly, 
the moment a country enters a state of emergency, there are certain democratic freedoms that not apply to you. And it's, it's because you can't expect people to have freedom of movement that's going to be spreading the virus. This is a democratic right that doesn't apply to us right now. But we're still lucky in that mm-hmm. you're allowed to do solo activities outside. Like, I saw that the Minister of Health announced that people are yeah. allowed to, like, walk their dogs alone, you're allowed to run alone. And I think that's a welcome relief because humans need to be outside, you know? But I I just feel like there's going to be somebody there who decides to take the entire mm. running club and go for a nice run, and they're going to mess it up. We have a oh. large... In- we have a large population that is homeless, mm. that is poor, that leaves, lives in informal settlements, so they can't self-isolate. I saw a very, um, I, I saw a headline earlier on. I don't know how true the headline is. I didn't read the article. I think the publication was, I don't know the publication, but I saw a headline somewhere in my Instagram feed that apparently Boris Johnson wanted to book out some cheap hotels for homeless people to self-isolate in the UK. And if that's true, then I think that's amazing. We know Saul Kersner, who started the Tokosan brand, unfortunately passed away. But his yes, brand was not doing well away, towards yeah. the end. 36 hotels have been shut down. So we have this party, the Economic Freedom Fighters, and they have their chief whip, Mr. Floyd Shivam. So the EFF previously said that people who have been tested positive for coronavirus must go to Robin Island. I had a problem with that. Robin Island has such historic connotations. Mm-hmm. Robin Island is a historical monument. You don't use it as a quarantine site easily. And also, banishing people, I don't think it's something we need to be considering as our first point of call. Mm-hmm. But then sometime during the speak, he then said, why don't we use the 36 mm-hmm. um, closed down Sun Hotels as reserve hospitals? I mean, you have floors and floors and floors and floors. You can use them. So in that sense, if the government wanted to self-isolate homeless people, there's the facility to do that. Each person has a bed in a bathroom, you know? So I'm gonna play. I'm gonna I'm gonna play devil's advocate. That's an amazing idea to curb the spread of the disease. However, the question after this is, oh, but you could have, you know, you can house these homeless people. Let's just continue oh, to yes. do that. Why keep them out? You know, give people a drug yeah. and it works. You have to give that person a lifetime supply. You use them for your study. So I think it applies here. If you help me it, under coronavirus, why must you pre- me Precisely. Afterwards? Isn't the housing structure there? I live there. Leave me. Working from home. So like a lot of, you know, obviously that's kind of the norm now. I know a lot of people were bringing in the argument of if you, companies just switching over overnight for uh, platforms from working from home and the workload is still efficient, it might even be maximized. A lot of people from the disabled community are questioning, oh, but couldn't I have done this all along? You know, they're saying companies could have provided these resources and, you know, people who are physically disadvantaged could have worked from home and not have to worry about public transport or they could have just had more free time to themselves to do, to go about their daily life, basically. Because it does time, it's planning and it's money that goes into decisions like that. I think it's a good short-term solution, but what happens when these people squat and just want to stay there and not leave? You know, no, I, I'm, not, I'm definitely not saying that people will, you offer I a think, finger, they take the hand. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that could be an I issue that needs to be looked at. Yeah. about it is why jump and use Tokosan hotels? You have schools, you have big holes in schools, you have other resources that are, you have government-owned properties or lands 
and you haven't even exhausted those yet, but already we're jumping to Tokhosan, mm. you know? If anything, economic freedom fighters, economic freedom fighters are leftist and communist, which means they are going to jump at the opportunity to seize individual property because they have a communist agenda. So maybe that's the background that premised this tweet because nowhere have they suggested that we exhaust government resources before we move on to asking the private sector to jump in. It, it makes sense logically to jump from, okay, we need places for the people to stay. The hotels are empty. Let's put them there. It's not as easy as that. Who do you identify? How far do they be? Transport, food, living. If somebody takes the, if somebody is taking the responsibility to house hundreds, possibly thousands of people, they take the responsibility for everything. Healthcare, food, you know, living, all of that. But, that President yeah. Ramaphosa announced the lockdown. We have two very uh, wealthy families in South Africa. We have the Ruprechts and the Oppenheimers, and they each donated one billion rand each. A lot of people called it a quick e-wallet transaction because yes. Twitter has no chill. But I think in the broader sense of things, <laughs> if you look yeah. back over our political timeline, we once had a time where these two families were targeted and they were called white monopoly capital. We later found out that was a whole bell passenger scam, the Gupta, they were trying to do some propaganda things. We know that. But I guess my biggest question is, when the Rupert Oppenheimers mm-hmm. gave us that amount of money, do you think it was a donation that was warranted? Do you think government should have held it off? I have a lot of people who told me that the reason why that donation was given is because it reassures international investors that people with a lot of money have faith in the government, enough to give them a large sum of money. But to what extent... Because we're talking um, about government having wiggle yeah. room. So should governments have accepted 2 billion rand if they have wiggle room? Hmm. Ooh, okay, and again, that's a heavy question to end on. I think... Okay, let's start here. If, if, I'm, if I'm the average citizen and I just heard that a person A is giving the government X amount of money to help with, their, with, to help with the relief of this pandemic, I would be, can you sound like that's very, mm-hmm. that's a very good idea to me. If mm-hmm. I don't know the inner workings of everything, like that's billions, that's billions, you know, plural of, of rands going into this whole relief fund. And I think, I don't, I don't know personally how that could be necessarily a bad thing. I definitely understand what you're saying about all of the history and all of the, the implications for international relations. But it's, this, this large sum of money will, put, will relieve mm. the pressure of the government to such an extent where they could actually do, they mm. could actually turn the situation around. You know, that's a lot of money for tech. Like in, in sub-Saharan Africa, we're really struggling. We already struggle with hospital mm-hmm. capacity on any given day. So with this, and like now, it's just putting pre- more pressure on that that statement where we need testing kits. We need, you know, more more swabs to the throats and more basic medical supplies. Everything's short. Everyone's short-staffed. Everything has a lack of resources. I think the money is a welcome addition. I don't want to say let's act now and it's think kind of later, act, but that's like, kind of what the situation we need to, like, is. Solve the thing. <laughs> okay, so there's a book called Meditations, written by a story philosopher by the name of Marcus Aurelius. He was a Roman emperor, 
and this book was actually read over and over again by Nelson Mandela during his own um, 27 years in prison. And so there's a quote in that book that says, Do not fear the future. You will meet it with, with whatever weapons arm you against the present. And I think it's very fitting to end off on thinking that that is exactly where the country is right now. Thank you to all the listeners. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and we appreciate any feedback. We hope to see you next time.